Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon. It's a determined, if dubious, committed, if cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, often wrong but rarely in doubt, exercise in elevated gas baggery that neither rain nor snow nor heat nor gloom of night nor the toxic rantings of the nuthouse right. A president attempting to invalidate a legitimate election and stage an auto coup, complete with an armed insurrection at the United States Capitol, nor... More broadly, and arguably even more disturbingly, the capture of a decent-sized chunk of our political, social, and civic spheres by a cadre of incoherent, insidious, conspiracy-addled, autocracy-craving, authoritarian-worshipping lunatics, hustlers, grifters, nihilists, and nincompoops, none of it, none of it has kept us from our duly sworn duty and obligations, giving you, our listeners, a fresh episode of this podcast week after week after week after week. Maybe not without fail because, you know, hashtag epic fail is one of our many mottos around here, but certainly without a pause. We've been doing that for more than two years, haven't had a break. All of which is to say that I am plum shagged out and desperately in need of some R&R And with the midterm election now comfortably in the rearview mirror in our democracy, amazingly, if I will admit a little unexpectedly, still intact, it seems like a suitable time for the Hell and High Water Home Office to give itself a fucking break. And so for the next few weeks, that is exactly what we are going to do. And we'll see you back here on the other side of the holidays, tanned, rested, refreshed, revitalized, and raring to go, ready to get back to cranking out more tasty content. In the meantime, don't despair. We're not leaving you entirely in the lurch for these weeks. To the contrary, every Tuesday morning, per usual, you will find a hopefully unfamiliar episode of the podcast doing the backstroke in your feed, dropped there by the able AI factotums who will be mining the store while we're away. And while these episodes come over the next few weeks may not be fresh or, strictly speaking, new, They will be piping hot, a carefully curated series of Hell and High Water Golden Oldies, which those of you who've been around from the start may remember, I hope fondly, and those of you who came along sometime later may never have encountered at all. Given our focus on politics these past few months and our desire not to take a dump on your mood of holiday-inspired good cheer, we've decided these encore presentations will avoid that topic like the plague and focus instead on culture, entertainment, technology, and such, with a run of some of our most favorite guests in those realms over the past two years, including this beauty right here, which, whether or not you've heard it before, you will not want to miss. And so with that, we leave you to it with a hearty and heartfelt namaste. So we are back here on Hell and High Water with part two of this amazing, epic, double-barreled episode of Hell and High Water with the legend Miami Steve Van Zandt, Little Steven, the captain of the band we're about to talk about, The Disciples of Soul, Stevie Van Zandt, author of the new book, Unrequited Infatuations, to talk about really the second half of the book, the second, you know, third and third third of the life. An incredible book, an incredible life, an incredible series of experiences. I hardly imagined living a more interesting life than Steve Van Zandt has. And the book is a real window into your life, Steve, and what happened when it took the most dramatic kind of left turn 
that you could possibly imagine when you walked away from from your best friend, Bruce Springsteen, in a way, and certainly walked away from your professional relationships with the band members in the E Street Band in the early 1980s, around 1982. You were kind of really gone by 1984. And it was like, man, this band about to become the biggest band in the world. And Steve Van Zandt is gone and off to do what? And the question, you know, was answered pretty quickly as you started to put out solo records, the first of which was called Men Without Women, uh, a reference to Hemingway, I believe, right? Right. And then it was a record that came out, got some attention, got some acclaim, but for some reason that I, at the time, did not hear. But I'll tell you that record of yours that registered for me immediately when it came on the scene was the second record, Voice of America, uh, and came out in 1984. And I want to, as we kick off this discussion, I want to kick off by playing a little bit of the title track. Of Voice in America, and if you have any weird desire to imagine, what was John Heilman like when he was in college? Imagine this song playing at extraordinarily high volumes in a cheap car with a very expensive stereo system on the streets of Evanston, Illinois in the fall of 1984, like rattling the windows and having people on Sheridan Avenue kind of looking at the car and saying, what the fuck is that? And who the fuck is that? And man, that song kicks ass. Here it is, Voice of America. So here's my first question, little Steven. Why little Steven as opposed to, I mean, you had been Miami Steve. You were Miami Steve Van Zandt. Next thing you know, you're little Steven with the Disciples of Soul. Explain that to me. I felt I had to change persona to fit the work. We had really been the rat pack of rock and roll, and you've heard me describe it that way before. And I was really into Dean Martin role, and Clarence was Sammy on steroids. And, and I was really that party guy and the fun guy, and that was my persona. So now I'm going to reveal this other side of me that is an artist, you know, which people got a little glimpse of if they were paying attention with some of the songs I'd written for Southside Johnny, but mostly not. You know, mostly here's a whole new guy. And everybody had nicknames in those days, and I felt I'm, I'm going to take the work seriously, but I want people to know I'm not taking myself too seriously. So I'm going to continue to have a nickname, but it's going to be, you know, different persona. It's a different acting job, if you will. Yeah. It's a different job, different movie. Yeah. So I picked Little Richard, who, for me, invented rock and roll, the entire concept and the, the archetype of what uh, rock and roll would exemplify, which is liberation. Right. I think he typified that, the archetype. Little Anthony was the first record I bought and first show I saw. Yep. Little Walter was my favorite blues guy. Yep. And Little Stephen and the Disciples of Soul had a kind of a... 50s doo-wop feel to it yeah i wanted in addition to like a gang feeling it's a great band name man i mean it's always been a i thought it's a very strong name for a band not not like east street band for instance which is a bad name for <laughs> exactly. shitty name for a band a uh, little scene of the like, side of soul that's a great band more like the duke street kings god kings, damn it yeah, <laughs> what it should have uh, been and still should be 
You'll be making this argument till the day you die, and, 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 yeah, and, people, and, and people will be looking at you like you're fucking crazy till the day you die. So one of the things about little Steven was he's a politics guy, it turns out. You said before earlier in the show, you said, you know, I was a 60s guy, and you got drafted to go to Vietnam, and you somehow managed to avoid the draft, like a lot of people who didn't want to go and fight in an immoral war. And you'd been a little bit interested in politics, but all of a sudden, politics became very central to your persona as an artist when you refashioned yourself. And I want to talk about it just... In general, before we talk about artist United Against Apartheid, which is a big topic, but what was the impetus for putting politics front and center for you in your solo career? Because that, that was obviously a dominant feature of it. Oh, no, it was 100% of it. You know, growing up in the 60s, in that Renaissance period, like I said before, everybody had a distinct identity. And even in the 70s, when the fragmentation took place and we stopped being a monoculture, as I talk about in the book in great detail, even then, the hybrids even had to have an identity, which is how Southside Johnny and Asbury Jukes combined rock and soul to become their identity, which was unique in its combination. You know, things stopped being completely original and started to become original in their combinations. And anyway, I, I had become obsessed with politics, as I was saying, on the river tour. You know, I've, I've told the story a million times. I, I'm on tour and a kid came up to me in Germany and asked me why I was putting missiles in his country. And of course, I said, what are you talking about? You know, I'm here to play rock and roll. And the question stayed with me for a long time until I realized, oh, my God, I'm not a guitar player or a, or a taxi driver or a Republican or a Democrat. I'm an American. And assuming that we are a democracy, which, of course, I discovered we're not, but we have a lot of democracy. And assuming that's true, you're responsible or partially responsible for what your government does. So I'm making all these connections, and I'm like, well, if I'm responsible, I wonder what else my government has done in my name, and what else am I responsible for, and what else are my obligations, being this American, now that I just discovered at the age of 30, you know. And so I started reading about foreign policy since World War II, and was very, very surprised. You know, keep in mind, I grew up with an ex-Marine Goldwater Republican father. You didn't have a lot of Noam Chomsky books around the house when you were exactly. you, had to figure, you had to figure out Noam Chomsky a little later on rather than That's right. you know, your dad wasn't like handing you a Howard Zinn kind of thing. That wasn't. Uh, <laughs> That's right. But I did get a real education about the whole conservative movement from the inside, which I never agreed with, but saw how it got perverted sure. with Nixon and then with Reagan and then finally with the orangutan. I start to. Um, you know, and, and then combined with me suddenly having a solo deal and, you know, I'm leaving the band. Yeah. Okay, well, the last thing the world needs is a bunch of love songs from an ex-sideman. <laughs> so who am I going to be? You know, how am I justifying my existence here? Yeah. And I said, well, I'll be the political guy. Right. I mean, nobody's doing it full time. Certainly people who have become my close friends like Jackson Brown, they're at every protest. They're certainly made important contributions to consciousness raising, you know, John Hall and Bonnie Raitt and Graham Nash and Grateful Dead and every, you know, Jefferson Airplane. Sure. You know, they all have moments and there had been a record occasionally, you know, and I talk about them all. Yep. Most notably, uh, Ohio by Neil Young and Crosby, Seals, Nash and Young. Great cut. But nobody was doing it full time. Right. Because they were too intelligent to do it full time. <laughs> you know, that'll be my identity, you know? Yeah. So um, I jumped in uh, completely. And you went down. I remember at the time, again, now we're getting into the place where I was like in college. I remember reading about you going 
down Nicaragua and then making this trip to South Africa in 1984. And for our younger listeners, it's hard to remember, hard people to remember what, <laughs> what it was like in that period in the mid 1980s when the debate around apartheid started to really boil, boil, not just simmer, but boil over in the United States. And when people started thinking about the notion that a lot of American companies had investments and American universities, crucially, had investments in South Africa, and that this was obviously a clearly immoral, repressive, autocratic regime, and, and one based on its immorality and its repressiveness based on, on institutionalized racism of a kind that was, in some respects, just as horrifying as American system of slavery, but in the modern age, still the mid-1980s. And you had Ronald Reagan, who said constructive engagement was the way we were going to fix this problem. And a lot of people looked at that and thought it was bullshit. You thought constructive engagement was just another way of letting the status quo prevail. So you got on a plane, went down to South Africa in 1984, and had a couple experiences that really opened your eyes even more widely than they were already open. I want you to talk about those as a prelude to getting to Artists United Against Apartheid and, and Sun City. I just couldn't find out much about it. You know, I was pretty good at research in those days. Yeah. You know, I discovered this entirely... There was no internet, though, just so everyone knows. Oh, oh, no, yeah, yeah. Back in 1984, you could not just type into the Google machine uh, Sun City <laughs> or Apartheid or right. P.W. Bota or Nelson Mandela or any of those things, right? Yeah. You had to work for a living in those days. Microfiche, baby. You had to go to the stacks trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really hadn't realized I had this analytical part of my mind that I discovered slowly I was doing research. I had written down, I think, 44 conflicts we were involved in. And, you know, half of them we were just on the wrong side of, yeah. one of which was South Africa. But I couldn't really find out much about it. It was oddly hard to uh, get a grip on what was happening because the conventional wisdom was that there were reforms going on and things were getting better. And so I, I went down there. I went down there twice, actually, in 84 and discovered that there were no reforms going on. They had this incredibly brilliant and evil homeland policy, is what the so-called reforms were, yeah. which was, first of all, based on our Indian reservations. The idea was to take all the black people, in, and by the way, black people couldn't vote, we should mention. You know, yes. there was, whatever it was, 24 million black people and 3 million white people, and black people could not vote. So the idea was to get all the black people who were doing all of the labor, of course, in the mines, send them back to their so-called tribal homelands, which didn't really exist. They were not very tribal in South Africa, except for the Zulu. Get them all out of South Africa proper, you know, get them out of the main cities, you know, Johannesburg and Pretoria, and, you know. And then declare those homelands separate countries and then declare South Africa a democracy and then bring the black workers back in as migrant labor. And, and that was the concept. That was their so-called reforms that were Boy. going on. <laughs> so I'm down there, and I'm just talking to everybody I could talk to. It's obvious to me that this thing's got to go, and that the boycott is a good idea, and most of the people I talked to were in agreement with it. I said to them, you know, boycotts will often hurt the people it's trying to help, you know, and they were like, we don't care. We're in jail here, and we want to get out. We don't care. A little more suffering is not going to make any difference. And part of my research down there, uh, the guys invited me to go to Sun City to have some fun because it was, you know, legal prostitution and gambling. And Pause for one second real quick and just say, Nelson Mandela was in exile. They had been imprisoned. And there was this movement to basically say, forget constructive engagement. We need to disinvest 
there needs to be a boycott. We need to cripple the the white government in South Africa economically. If you're ever going to change anything politically, you got to get, first of all, get Mandela out of jail. But second of all, you begin to kind of try to actually force democracy and break the back of, of, of apartheid. That was the left view of how to engage here was through a cultural boycotts and more importantly, economic boycotts and conservative, white conservatives in America were against that and said, no, we must engage, do constructive engagement. You were down there Sun City was a resort, right? Mm. It was like the Vegas of South Africa, right. in which it was all black labor and mostly white tourists who came to see bands come and play as they would in Vegas, essentially. That's a fair assessment of what Sun City was, right? Yeah, and they were paying people extra money to play there because they were pretending it was in a different country. Right. So by playing there and by the tourists coming there, they weren't violating the boycott. Right. You know, they were playing some other country, which yes. is, you know. A, a country that was not recognized by any other country and did not exist. There was no United Nations representative. It was just a made-up thing. Exactly. Like declaring Las Vegas a separate country or something like tomorrow <laughs> and saying, ah, no, Vegas, you can do anything there because it's a separate country. It's just total bullshit. So I'm down there, and I, you know, and slowly, slowly dawning on me that these guys got to go. I mean, there's no fixing this. And an incident happened, which I, I won't talk about, but it's in the book that really put me over the edge. And I just started strategizing, okay, how do we take this government down? How do you end the government, you know? Right. So this is taking my political activism to an extreme that I hadn't gone to yet. I believe you saw a white taxi driver run a black person down. Right. Uh, and or try to and, and escape any punishment whatsoever. So completely it was not nothing was going to happen. And that was out, an outrage for you. And I like this moment because again, just remember here. Steve Van Zandt is like now not in the E Street Band, as he said, persona non grata, not like a Bruce Springsteen level celebrity, not the kind of person for whom I'm going to take on the South African government. So it was not like a particularly like reasonable thing to think. It was a pretty extreme thing to come back from South Africa thinking, I want to take on this cause. And yet that was your thought. It was kind of like a lot of chutzpah there, I would say, my friend. It was. It was a lot of chutzpah. <laughs> I mean, a lot of chutzpah. And chutzpah I, I had in those days because, again, my life had just ended. All right? it, it wasn't like my life was damaged. My life was over. Right. So now I'm dead Yes. and reborn. And so I felt, well, since my life is over that I've dreamed about my entire life, this goal of my entire life is now gone. I better make this count. Whatever I'm going to do now, it better count for something because I'm never going to be that thing I was hoping to be. Right. Maybe next life, but this life is over. So let's make it count. And so that combined with the chutzpah caused me to sit down and say, okay, how do I do this? Because I'd seen that the sports boycott was extremely effective. They were megalomaniacal, the Afrikaners. I mean, yeah. they hated not being in the Olympics. Hated it. Yes. They were very, very competitive people, you know. And you know, Arthur Ashe and others had helped establish that sports boycott. I figured out that the home run was going to be the economic boycott, which would shut the banks off, and then they'd have to make changes. So, you know, the bridge would be the cultural boycott, where we came in. Right. So we use Sun City as the symbol of apartheid. And, you know, we're not going to play Sun City, meaning we were going to enforce the boycott. And uh, I thought I'd put five or six people on it. You know, at that point, I took it off my right. third record, Freedom No Compromise, because yeah. it was just too important to me. I'm like, yeah. if it goes on my record, no one's ever going to hear about it, right. you know? Right. And to be honest, it wasn't that big an issue in America yet. No. It, it, it uh, you know... A couple of people you'd hear about it once in a while, Harry Belafonte, you know, Stevie Wonder might mention it or 
Randall Robinson, but it just wasn't an issue where you saw a massive protest going on yet. Sure. As opposed to Europe, right. it really was a, a significant issue. Yeah. And, and I'll say this was a, a huge issue among college kids in my right. generation. If you were in school in the mid 1980s and you were uh, a political activist and motivated by political idealism and progressivism, you know, South Africa was in a lot of ways the issue. So, you know, at places like Northwestern, where I was, and at Harvard yeah. and other places in the Ivy League and other places all over the country, you had kids who were starting to look at university endowments and and seeing what companies they were invested in, and particularly what the companies that did business in South Africa or with South Africa. And what started to happen around that moment, partly inspired by rock music, you know, Peter Gabriel did this song in the early 80s called Biko, which was about Stephen Biko, who was just a recently martyred, sainted sort of figure who was a member of the South African resistance and uh, a black activist in South Africa who got jailed in the late 70s and then killed. And he eventually was also the, the subject of the movie Cry Freedom. And, and Gabriel did this incredible, beautiful kind of anthemic, elegiac song called Biko, they just did a, a, a reboot of that song not that long ago that I saw on YouTube. Anyway, people were kind of turned on to that song and people started to pay attention to this issue and they got involved. And all of a sudden on campuses, there were shanty towns, which was the mode of the way that a lot of blacks lived under apartheid in South Africa, lived in shanties in places like Pretoria and Johannesburg. And so these shanty towns went up on college campuses in front of university administration buildings, including at Northwestern, as I said, where I was, and people would camp out and sleep sleep out overnight in the shanty towns and have demonstrations that would go on for days and, and overnight for weeks on end in this time frame, as I said, in the mid-1980s. So, you know, 1985 was the year that you, Steve, released Sun City, a record that I think really lit the spark for a lot of us then. And as you said, you started to put some people together to sing a protest song against apartheid in South Africa. And I, I want to play a little bit of it right now. And we'll talk about how you got this group of artists together. It is an incredible list of people who you rounded up to play and join a group that you called Artists United Against Apartheid. So let's play the first verse of Sun City and we'll talk about it on the other side. That's, first of all, Run DMC, Grandmaster Mel Mel, and Duke Booty, Africa Bombada and Curtis Blow, Big Youth. You had a whole assemblage of rappers. Interesting, right? Because this is all pre-walk this way. A white rock musician like you collaborating with hip-hop people was not done in 1985. This was pre-any crossover between rock and rap at that point. So you were kind of pioneering that to begin with. And then you also assembled 
you know, Bruce is on the album, Bono's on the song, Pat Benatar's on the song, Dylan's on the song. You assembled an incredible assortment of high-end rock stars to come and play on this thing. How did you pull that shit off? I mean, the song was, again, I think the hip-hop collaboration was the leading indicator of things that would happen as rock and rap kind of came together a couple years subsequent with, I say, Walk This Way with Run DMC and Aerosmith, but you were ahead of the curve on that, and you got an incredible array of people to get involved in this punching way above your weight, I would say, in terms of your level of celebrity. So how'd that happen? How'd you pull that off? I mean, it became, you know, the four musketeers, myself, Danny Schechter, Arthur Baker, and Hart Perry. And without those three, this thing would not have been a success because of what you said, because I was fighting way above my pay grade at this point. I had witnessed the black artists having trouble expressing themselves you know i I witnessed marvin gaye's fight with barry gordy the motown owner and president when marvin gaye wanted to put out the now classic what's going on those of us in the white community were expected to express ourselves that was part of our art form at that point that was really prerequisite to be considered a serious artist you know you had to be a real artist and talk about real things not so much in the black community They were very much discouraged from doing that. So along come these rappers, and I'm hearing the early stuff, you know, I don't know, White Lines and The Message, I guess, and, you know. Yeah, sure. You know, Melly Mel and Duke Booty and Grandmaster Flash. And I'm like, this is really important. But the industry didn't feel that way. They were hoping it would just go away. I mean, I can't even express to you the negativity that people felt towards rap in the beginning. I mean, it was really... uh, get this ghetto trash out of here, you know, just hoping it would just die and go away. And I just felt uh, very differently about it. I'm like, this is extremely important stuff. Finally, black artists are getting a chance to express themselves. And I got to support this. So, of course, we all agreed. And it was because of Arthur Baker's phone book that we got it done. People said to me, you're putting Melly Mel next to Miles Davis and Jackson Brown, (laughs) Duke Booty next to Bob Dylan. And, you know, I'm like, yes, I am. So that was, you know, one of the many elements of this very complex uh, project. And and we knew by pointing to an extreme version of racism, we would also be, hopefully, people would start recognizing our own, exemplified by the fact that nobody would play it in America because it was too black for white radio and too white for black radio. So there you go. There's our own apartheid, which uh, unfortunately is rearing its ugly head right now again. Yes, sir. In an extraordinary way. So at the time, we didn't choose the artists because of their celebrity. We chose because they either had done work that said something or, you know, there was something in their careers, like Hall & Oates had turned down going to Sun City. Ringo with the Beatles had turned down going to South Africa and had, in fact, even in the southern United States, insisted on their audiences being integrated, which is a little-known fact about the Beatles, by the way. Interesting. Uh, yeah, you know. yeah. So, you know, either that or, or some people saying something, you know. So it was an unusual gathering of artists. <laughs> Introduced a few to America, like Peter Garrett. Yeah, sure. Who, would, uh, who was very political in Australia, Midnight Oil, and Steve Baders, and Michael Monroe, and uh, Big Youth. But we wanted everybody included, you know. We wanted salsa included, Latinos, you know, Ruben Blades and Ray Barreto. And, you know, we wanted a little bit more diversity than you had seen in some of the other things. As I said a second ago, it's kind of a catalytic moment. I don't believe you think 
that Sun City actually broke Nelson Mandela out of jail. There were a lot of big factors that happened there. But I know you think that you had a tangible effect. And I guess I'm curious about in as you look back on it now, whether you know, the limited sense of, I think you were successful in making Sun City toxic for musicians. Probably there were a few people who still would go and play, but in that limited sense, you guys got a lot done. And I think you were feel like you're part of that larger. I jokingly said to you that I'm not, I'm not really joking. (laughs) It was part of a moment that, you know, I found myself at the Northwestern University in that shanty town. And that was the first time I went to jail. Maybe the second, I can't remember the sequence, but that was one of the times I went to jail was for protesting over this matter. And again, I, when I think back on it, I think about feeling inspired by the song and by the moment that we were all in at that time and how important and how morally urgent it felt. And, and I know you inspired people because I can tell you that the song inspired me and a lot of my friends. And, and it was, again, part of that moment where, you know, U.S. policy changed. And eventually the South African apartheid regime did crumble. So I guess I, in retrospect, if you think back, what do you feel like you had as a tangible effect in not just the song, but the work you did on this stuff in general, the, the broader mission, because it wasn't just the one song, although the song I think was very important in that moment. How do you look back on it now and assess your impact? I was watching it happen. First of all, Bill Bradley brought me to the Senate, you know, and, and, I, and I spoke with the Senate. Half the senators couldn't find it on the map. Okay, and you'd think that the name of the country would give it away, but you know that was the level of of consciousness at that point. Okay, you got Africa over here, guys. You know where Africa is? It's the south. It's the south part. I mean, this is senators, and so suddenly, kids are coming home to their parents, their Congress people, saying, "What is up with this Sun City, South Africa thing?" You know? Yeah. I was uh, working. Uh, with Ron Dellums and the other, as they created the sanctions bill, the all-important sanctions bill. And it was really a rush to the finish line. Could we, in fact, raise enough consciousness to build up enough goodwill that we would be able to overcome the inevitable veto by Reagan? That was the whole question. And everyone, everyone, everyone credited us with raising that consciousness. And the sanctions bill came up. Reagan vetoed it. And for the first time, Reagan had a veto overridden. And it was overridden, by the way, by Republicans like Richard Lugar, who, you know, remember that Republican Party, folks. Okay, you know, voting, voting (laughs) against against prejudice, against bigotry. Yeah, actually, I think the first override of a Reagan veto was in 82. And this was, I think, the second, Um, you know, just the point is really not so much that it was the first or the second, but it was a very rare thing for a Reagan veto to be overridden by the House and Senate. And and this was one of the very early occasions when that happened. And and the reason that it was overridden, I mean, it seems almost incomprehensible in today's political environment. You know, the only way to override this veto was to have a huge amount of Republican support. And so Republican senators back in the mid-1980s, people like Dick Lugar, who you mentioned, who said, you know, we need to impose economic sanctions against this racist government in South Africa. I mean, as we sit here today, can you imagine, can you imagine uh, Republican senators taking a stand like that against a president of their own party on an issue related to race. It is just fucking, you know, out of anybody's ability to, to even kind of conjure that as we sit here in 2021. It feels not like just a different Republican party, but a completely different universe. Yeah. Like yeah. in a galaxy far, far away. Really, you know? really. It's sadly so. So anyway, that was it. The banks cut them off. The unholy trinity fell like dominoes, which was Reagan, Thatcher, and Cole. 
UK, Germany. And they had to let Mandela out of jail. And, you know, people can make up their own minds. Of course, it was a huge movement. We were only part of it. But I think we were a very significant part of it. In 1988, you were playing at Nelson Mandela's birthday, a tribute concert, a big, giant tribute concert at Wembley Stadium in London. And um, before playing one tune, you gave kind of a, an oration, kind of a, a stirring oration at the beginning of it. And I want to play a bit of it here. Again, this is you in 1988 taking a little bit of a victory lap, you could say, at the tribute concert for Nelson Mandela at Wembley. Let's take a listen. I don't know if there's anything I've ever covered in my life covering politics, Steve, that was like truly more satisfying than when Mandela got released from prison. Incredible. You know, you think about everything that happened from that period in the 80s up until when Mandela was finally free and the end of the apartheid regime there and seeing him walk free. It felt like a big victory for the forces of freedom and justice and, and civility. The world kind of rallied and it took a long time and it took way too long, but it happened and you really get that kind of clean, ultimately this victory where it's like, oh, right. Okay. This thing has gone, you know? Very rare, very rare victory. Certainly the highlight of, of my life in politics, closely followed by Barack Obama being elected president in, a, in an extraordinary prejudiced country. But seeing Mandela come out was just surreal. It was just surreal. Just something you did not expect to see in your lifetime, no matter how how much bravado you pretended, you know? Yes. It was amazing, amazing. Yeah, just an amazing, amazing moment. And the fact that, you know, whatever history will judge, but the reality is that not just you, but artists like you, you in the forefront of this one, artists had a role to play in this. It was not a trivial thing. And this was a place where artists and activists moved the needle in a way that was profoundly for the good. And I think it's reasonable to take, wouldn't take a victory lap exactly, but I feel a lot of satisfaction as having been part of it at a time when, you took this cause up in a visionary way, I think, when a lot of people were running away from it or didn't even know it existed. So you get a big market credit in my book from that. In your book, Unrequited Infatuations, you're going to want to read about that entire thing. It takes up a nice chunk of the book about Steve's political dalliances in the 1980s. I'm going to take a break here, and then we'll come back on the other side and talk about the acting of Steve Van Zandt and his seminal role as Silvio Dante here on Hell and High Water. A man who knows something about Hell and High Water, Silvio Dante, my God, from The Sopranos. We'll be back on the other side of the ads with little Steven on Hell and High Water. And we are back as we make our way through the second part of this amazing special epic two-part episode with the legend Steve Van Zandt, author of the new book, Unrequited Infatuations. We have talked at length, Steve, about your musical career, and we're about to talk about the next phase in your career, the really the most unexpected phase, the phase where you become a thespian. And I'm going to play a clip right now to kick off this discussion. It's not obvious why I would be playing this clip. 
because if you don't know the story, it's kind of coming out of left field and you wouldn't really get the connection. But it's important because this is a, a clip of a speech that you gave for the band The Rascals into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1997. And it is the way that a uh, television auteur by the name of David Chase discovered you and first started to think of you as a guy who might be an actor and not just a guy who might be an actor, but a guy who might play not just a part, but play the lead part in a series that he was thinking about doing about a New Jersey mobster called Tony Soprano. So let's listen to this speech and then we can try to figure out what it was that David Chase saw in this speech that made him think, oh yeah, that guy should be the star of my next series, uh, a series called The Sopranos. Here it is. Let's listen to it. We'll get into it on the other side. Some people may not realize it, but the Rascals were the first rock band in the world. In the 50s, you know, we had vocal groups and uh, solo people, you know. And then in the 60s on the West Coast, uh, you had the Beach Boys, but yeah, they really were a vocal group and they became a band later, you know. We also had the Birds, but uh, McGuinn really did that first record by himself and then they became a band later. <laughs> and okay, over there in England, some guys were making some noise, but uh, in the real world, in the center of the universe, New Jersey, the Rascals were the first band. So, so that's the 1997 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony. You're inducting the Rascals. And that is a speech that David Chase, who's thinking about making a show about a New Jersey mob boss called Tony Soprano, that hearing you, apparently, seeing you deliver that speech, begins the journey that ends up with you on the Sopranos. Tell that story. Yeah, I mean, that's... That's how my life happens, you know. I mean, if if he had gone one channel further with the remote, you know, yeah, no acting career whatsoever. Right. Uh, it was that bizarre, and you know, he was ready to move on. He had been in TV his whole life and wanted to make movies, which he's now doing, and uh, was ready to break all the rules and wanted new faces in this final TV show. He called and said, you know, you want to be in my new TV show? And I was like, wow, what a nice compliment. But no, thanks. I'm, I'm not an actor, you know? Yes. <laughs> and he said, yes, you are. Yes, you are. Come on down. So at that point, I kind of was done with the music business and looking for something to do. Did he tell you what he saw in you? Yeah, yeah. From that, like, what was it that he saw in you that made him think... Because he didn't just want you to be in the show. He wanted you to be Tony Soprano. Yeah, I He wanted you to be the lead in the show. <laughs> I, I mean, like, this is like how fucking weird this is, man. I'm sorry. I'm not going to let this go without commenting. It's like the chapter should be called Blind Shithouse Luck. Because as you said, one channel over, he stumbles on this thing and sees you and doesn't just think, hey, here's a guy who's never acted before. I'm going to put him in my show. But I'm, here's a guy who's never acted before. I'm going to make him the lead in my show. He's going to be Tony Soprano. I, like, what was it he saw? I mean, I like the induction speech and everything, Steve. I thought it was really, it's nice. But I mean, it's not like obvious to me from the speech that you're like the next Marlon Brando. No, no. That's why David Chase is a genius. What can I say? You know, and he's David Chase and we're not. And I'm not. Yes, 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 fair enough. Um, Good point. It was partly his contrarian sensibility. I mean, and believe me, he is a contrarian. You know, he likes to do things the hard way and, and make things difficult for the powers that be. Partially, he had been a big fan. He had my solo records and, of course, the E Street Band. 
And he saw the E Street Band as the Rat Pack of rock and roll. He saw me acting that role, more or less, in the band. He knew we were not nameless, faceless sidemen. He saw me as that second banana to Bruce, or second or third banana in those days, counting Clarence. You know, so he kind of put it together in his head. And plus, he wanted Jersey credibility, you know? Yeah. Everybody had turned down the show because he insisted on filming in Jersey. And people were like, we don't do that in Hollywood, you know? (laughs) (laughs) What are you, nuts? So it was a combination of all of these things. And I went down and and I auditioned. I I took it seriously because, you know, I thought this this could be a whole new career, a whole new craft. So I found out where John Gotti got his clothes made. And uh, I wrote a whole biography about the guy and designed his 50s look, you know, because he was a bit of a romantic thinking back in the good old days before the mob started ratting each other out, you know. And I got the gig, actually. And he just said, well, we just have a formality with HBO. You know, we have to, you have to go audition for them. Yeah. And I did. And they were like, well, look, we like him. He can be in the show. But, you know, <laughs> depending on this guy who never acted with the most expensive thing we've ever done. I mean, HBO was nothing in those days. They were yes, they had a right. football show on and I don't know what else, right. you know. Uh, a lot of right. movies that were a little bit pornographic so people would subscribe. So... The, the good old days at HBO, we call them. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> so, so he said that they won't let me cast you. He says, what else do you want to do? You can do anything you want. I said, well, I got to tell you, now, now that, you know, this all happened so quickly. Yeah. I said, I said, now that I think about it, David, I said, I tell you the truth, I feel a little guilty taking an actor's job. I really shouldn't do this. I watched my wife, who's a real actor, go to school for years and then do off-Broadway and all of that. I said, you know, these people work very hard, and I don't feel very good about that. So he said, okay, I'll tell you what, then. I will write you in a part that doesn't exist. You're not taking an actor's job. I said, wow, all right. He said, so what do you want to do? I said, well, I got this treatment. I had fantasized about writing and maybe even directing yeah. movies or, or TV, yeah. but I never thought about acting, never. So I said, I have this treatment about this independent hitman called Silvio Dante, and he runs a club like the old Copacabana, you know, and it's, you know, again, he's living in the past. It's, it's set in present day, but he has the big bands, and he has the Jewish Catskill comics, and he has the, the dancing girls, and and I uh, said, wow, that sounds good, you know. So he comes back a couple of days later and says, uh, can't afford it, but... We'll make it a strip club, and you can run the strip club for the family. So, <laughs> so that was that was that. You know? It's an incredible thing. I mean, so you you get bumped out of the lead naturally. I think we all kind of we get into the tune that HBO was not being unreasonable there. Yes, things worked out well. Yes, they get Jimmy Gandolfini to come in and play the part. Obviously, an incredible. I mean, one of the great marriages of an actor in a role, yeah. really. You know, ever. Do you know Gandolfini at all before this, or was he totally a stranger to you when it started? You know, it, it was a funny thing, because as I'm walking in to audition for HBO, there were actors sitting in the lobby, and I saw him, and I had just seen him in True Romance. Yeah. And I think Ed Shorty. Yep. And I'd noticed him in both. Yeah. You know, especially True Romance. Yeah. And I said to the casting girl, I swear to God, I said to her, you know, that's who should be playing Tony. <laughs> And she looked at me like, are you out of your fucking mind? I mean, nobody in Hollywood thinks that way because it's such a dog-eat-dog type of profession, you know? She says, what are you, nuts? You got the part. What are you talking about? And she had never heard of him. She she didn't know who he was. 
I want to play a little clip of you and Gandolfini in the fifth season. I mean, there's so many great exchanges between Silvio Dante and, and Tony Soprano, so many over the course of the life of the show. But here's one where basically Silvio does something that he hadn't really done for the first four seasons of the show. He kind of like gets in Tony's face and calls him out on some of his shit. I want to play this this scene and then talk about it because I think it leads us in an interesting direction. So let's play that. Sil tries to confront Tony Soprano here about some of what is really going on with Tony. Here's where the conversation gets difficult. Go. All due respect. You were ready to hand him your cousin a week ago. So it's not about standing with the guys or upholding some rules. Not really. Then what's it all about? Why don't you illuminate me? It's about you don't want to eat shit from John. You don't want to bow down. You told him to go fuck himself. Which, to be honest, wasn't exactly appropriate, considering. Oh, is that right? With all due respect. What the fuck do you know what goes on in my head? I know you said you were a kid, Tom. Frankly, you got a problem with authority. <laughs> Which is maybe the truest thing ever spoken to the show. Tony Soprano had a problem with authority. That's a fact. And and I the reason I play it, Steve, is that, you know, you have said that the relationship between Silvio Dante and Tony Soprano, that the way you thought about it was is kind of modeled on your relationship with Bruce. You were kind of the underboss in this fictional crime family, just like you were the underboss, the consigliere in the E Street Band. And obviously, by the middle of your time on The Sopranos, you reunited with Bruce and rejoined the band and so on. I really want to hear you talk about that, though, the ways in which you think there are parallels between those things and the ways in which that you're thinking through what Silvio Dante would be like was kind of a replication or an extension of the relationship that you saw with Bruce in the band. You know, it, it was funny because it, it didn't start off that way. We didn't really have that vision, which we could have, because it was really a gap in the pilot script. There was actually nobody in that very important role when you think about it later. But we didn't start off that way. You know, my role was unclear, kind of an associate or something in, in the beginning. But I think by the end of the first season or so, you know, I, I'd, I'd written a biography of the character and, and said that, you know, he had grown up with Tony Soprano and they were best friends and he always had watched his back. And I shared that with the writers, obviously. And David Chase having the great instincts. Slowly, I think Stolly put, put it together because me and, and Jimmy bonded, by the way, very quickly. I think because we were both character actors. You know, neither one of us was really comfortable being a front man although certainly he sure, sure got really good at it. And I got really good at it in the 80s myself. But that was not our inclination. I think both of our inclinations was to be a character actor or a sideman or behind-the-scenes guy. So we, we became very close very quickly. And maybe David picked up on that and combined with this little thing I'd written and combined with the fact that there was nobody in that role. And it's an extremely important role in a mob family. So by the end of that first season, this kind of drifted into that position of underboss, you know, and consigliere, which sometimes is two different people in the mob world, but sometimes the same. And I just was really comfortable with that because I knew exactly what those dynamics were. I knew what it was like to be the only guy who doesn't want to be the boss, you know, which was Silvio's character. I knew what it was like to be the guy who had to bring the bad news 
to the boss occasionally. Right. And because I was the only guy who was not afraid of the boss, who had no to fear. To tell him the, the truth. Boss. Yeah. Right. So, right. you know, yeah. you had to be fearless. You know, you had to have that relationship where you didn't fear him in order to sometimes have a serious conversation. You're going to get blamed. You know, he's going to be kill the messenger. And, and you can handle it. That's part of the gig. That's part of being friends or part of being the underboss. And, and you know, if your bond is strong enough, the relationship will recover. So I, I knew very much what that dynamic was. And suddenly, you know, that relationship really came to life, I think. You started to see it more in the second, third season as it went. I think that's a truly a brilliant analysis of, of the part. And I think it actually helps illuminate why a first-time novice actor could rise to the level. No, all due, all due respect, but this part, there was a, something at the core of it that made sense. And you finding that parallel was important to what enabled you to be able to do the part of Silvio Dante and do it so well for so long. It's a key insight, I think, into how you kind of pulled this off, right? I think so. You know, I mean, totally un unconsciously, you know, at first, we just were kind of finding our way. But once it locked in, it really locked in. And I think that's true. You know, I think uh, this is a, a good place for us to take a quick break. All these breaks are painful because I just want to keep talking to you, Steve, but we do have to pay the bills. So we're going to take, take another break and then we'll try to bring this epic two-part episode of Hell and High Water in for a landing. It's been just utterly delightful to be here with Steve Van Zandt, legendary rocker, activist, actor, and now the author of Unrequited Infatuations. Let's take that break and we'll come back and finish up here. I, I'll be so sad to see you go. But anyway, let's listen to the ad and we'll talk on the other side. And welcome back to Hell and High Water with our guest, Steve Van Zandt. Steve, before the break, we were talking about your role in The Sopranos. You didn't end up in the lead, but with Silvio, you created a timeless portrait and people were obsessed with the show. People were obsessed with all the characters in it, from Livia Soprano to, to Junior, Dr. Melfi, to all of them, right? But Silvio is special. And I just think, you know, if, the, if Twitter had existed in the early aughts, can you imagine the number of memes that Silvio with the suits and the hair and the expressions and the line reads that you did, how many memes you would have spawned? It would have been kind of, you know, mind blowing. And it was kind of inevitable given that level of cultural impact that you would go on and do other acting. So you did, you know, Lily Hammer is the biggest example. You had a role both as an actor and in the music of that series. And then of course the Irishman, Scorsese's kind of huge sprawling gangster epic about Irish gangsters with all of his ensemble people. And there you are playing Jerry Vale in The Irishman. I, <laughs> I just, I love the idea that you stumbled kind of into an acting career and you end up in a Scorsese movie. Um, I mean, it's just like utterly mind blowing. I think in some ways it does occur to me that rather than titling this book, unrequited infatuations, you might have just called it blind shithouse luck because <laughs> that's like another perfectly apt title for this book. So many unexpected turns of events that got you to where you are today. And you, you are just this kind of, you know, beloved actor. And this clip that I'm about to play kind of captures why it cracks me up. There are so many I could choose from, but I want to get this one in a little clip from the Sopranos where you're playing Silvio Dante and basically doing all of the characters in the Godfather in quick succession for Tony and a bunch of the other mobsters at the bottom Bing. So let's listen to this. Silvio Dante does all of the major players in the Godfather and not just the men. Just when they thought I was out, they pull me back in. <laughs> All right, Kay. Just this one time, I want you to ask me about my affairs. Is it true 
It's like basically the entire Godfather in like less than 30 seconds, basically. <laughs> All like Godfather 1 and Godfather 2 in less than 30 seconds. I can't believe this is a controversy, but there's a time when people would complain about the Italian stereotyping that the Sopranos, you know, I don't know. Woke, I don't know if there's a woke thing around Italians, Americans. I don't know. But there was complaints about it, right? People would say, oh, you know, they're just stereotyping the Italians and making them into mob family. I assume you just laughed at that, right? Well, you know, the Sopranos cast was banned from the Columbus Day Parade. Right. <laughs> I swear right. to God. I know. And then the next year they made Paul Savino the Grand Marshal. Show, right? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah, I've always thought that whole thing was really weird and exaggerated. And I never understood the controversy with Frank Sinatra and even the family, you know, who I'm you know very friendly with. You know, they had kind of a little misgivings about the, about the Sinatra stuff. It never bothered me. It was perfectly logical. They helped him when nobody else was helping him. Give him the gig at 500 Club in Atlantic City, you know, yeah. skinny D'Amato and whatever. And I don't understand it to this day. A lot of people in our, our business had rumors about them that they're mob related, you know. Sure. Uh, one of which was a friend of mine and, went all, it was, and it was such a negative thing that he went all the way to the top of Sony, being the president of Sony, you know, Frank Barcelona had some encounters with the mob and they told me about it and for the most part those kind of rumors or whatever nothing but positive i mean gonna get into the restaurant quicker yeah people are gonna pay you back quicker if they owe you money people aren't gonna be quite so quick to insult you i don't know i just have always thought that the negative aspects of being suspected you're in the mob i always thought that was really quite exaggerated yeah. yeah, I always find all these identity things just like I get it. I get people are sensitive, and I get that respect should be paid. But I also think you know, hey, but but, end, but you know, know but it's silly. I mean, it's, every ethnic group had criminals. I mean, believe me, of course. the Jewish guys were just as tough. Jewish guys were murder incorporated. You know, right? right. I mean, you yeah, know, they, they, they were the purple gang. You know, they, you know. Right. I mean, and the Irish had you know all kinds right. of you know. So right. every ethnic group has them. I totally agree. I want to end just by saying this, like. We could spend a long time talking about a lot of these things and longer than either one of us have. But I do want to kind of close the loop, right? I mean, the reality is around the time that you're making The Sopranos, you end up back in the E Street Band. And that was a, a big moment, I think, for a lot of people, and I'm sure for you, but I think from the outside, people who care about the E Street community, which is a lot of people, you know, people care in a profound, passionate way. You're coming back into the fold, becoming part of the band again. It felt like there was unfinished business, I think, to a lot of people. And when you came back, there was a lot of in the E Street fan community, which numbers many, many tens of millions of people. There was like a, oh, thank God. Like, this feels like the the circle is now unbroken again, you know, so in some way. There was like kind of a, a sense of closure that people mm -hmm. had, I think, from the outside. And I'm curious about it from the inside for you. It's like, you know, the band got put in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on its own. Uh, I know that was one of the other fights that you had with Bruce was on that question. Bruce got in and, and then the band, that's the band's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You eventually came back to the band. Just reflect, I guess, with the benefit of hindsight and having written this book and gotten to kind of think about all this stuff through. Like, just talk a little bit about your sense of closure is the only word I can think of that describes it. Like how you view now with that kind of perspective that you were in the band, that you left, that there was all that bitterness and pain and then that eventually you made your way back 
and on the enduring nature of the friendship you have with Bruce. I mean, all of it. I feel like there's a lot to say about about it and how how you see it in the grand arc of your life. Well, I think I use the same word. Uh, you know, I, I think it is closure, and you know, it was left in a kind of an awkward place because of when I left and how I left. So I, I felt it was a close call, though. I got to tell you the truth. I think I talk about this in the book. Yeah. Because, you know, I was pretty committed to an acting life, and I felt that that would lead to writing and directing and producing, of course, which is really, you know, where I really wanted to be. I mean, performing has always been icing on the cake for me. Yeah. Which is all the people see, I realize. That's all an audience sees is the performance part, whether you're an actor or whether you're a rock star or whatever it is. And that's important. It's important to do that. I realize, you know, you have to make that public sort of connection. The, the bigger celebrity you are, it helps everything else. Yeah. And so, you know, that's always been important, but not to me. You know, the performer part of my life has always been vacation. It's been the fun part. It's never been a significant part of what I do. I see myself as a writer, producer, mostly. Yeah. So anyway, I knew that if I went back with the E Street Band... That was going to be really significantly diluted and significantly compromised. And while David Chase very, very graciously booked all of my scenes on days off of the tour, which was remarkable. I mean, I basically, I toured the 10 years The Sopranos was on, seven seasons in 10 years, and Lilyhammer three seasons in four years. That's 14 years. I was touring almost the entire time. Yeah. And I only missed one month of one tour and one month of another tour. That's it. So it was kind of remarkable that I was able to do both at the same time. But it was diluted. You know, the, my part was less than it would have been in Sopranos. I never got a chance to write or produce or direct in, with Sopranos. But I would with Lilyhammer. You know, I, I took everything I learned with Sopranos and used it on Lilyhammer. That's why I'm, I'm particularly proud of those 24 shows that people have been discovering during the quarantine. But I, I felt I needed to go back. I needed to get the closure with Bruce. And, you know, that's where we're at right now. And we're not done yet. No, you're not. One of the last two questions I have for you, this might be a very simple one. When you look back on it all now, do you have regrets? I know you're very philosophical in the book about the things you might have done differently or things that you now think I probably shouldn't have done this or I should have done that. But... You know, if I had made these other choices, other things wouldn't have happened. And so you're kind of seem like you're at peace with some choices. Again, you're very open about saying I shouldn't have left the band, but you're kind of at peace with it. Are there things in all of this that you think back on and think, yeah, you know, I really regret this or I really regret that? Um, no, I mean, writing the book really helped all that stuff. It really did. It, it yeah. was both cathartic and, and also revelatory in, in, in many cases as you go back and you really go back and put yourself in that moment. Because I don't do that. I, I don't do that ever. Right. You know, I don't, I don't look back. So this was a real big experience, actually going back and reliving it. And uh, at times it's painful. At times it's surprisingly pleasant. It was nice to revisit with a lot of my friends who have passed on. You know, it was kind of nice to go back to them and see them again in, in a way. But... Um, I think my biggest regrets are, are just not doing more when I felt I, I probably could have done more. You know, I, I try to talk Bruce into starting a company after we produce Gary U.S. Bonds. 
I wanted us to buy the power station and then start a record company producing nothing but 50s and 60s artists. And I, I wish I could have talked him into that. And having not talked him into that, I still should have produced a record for Benny King and David Ruffin and a lot of those guys that were still around. And I, I regret not doing more work, you know, if anything, you know, not, not yeah. having a greater output than I've had. That's really the, my biggest regret. My, my only regret in life is wasting time, you know. Yeah. And I look back and I thought, I could have done more. <laughs> I could have done a lot more. And so yeah, that's a slight, a slight regret. But everything else, you go back and you say, well, I shouldn't have done that, but I know why I did. You know, right, I can right. see why yeah, I did it. You know, at the, at the time it made sense. Yeah, even if it doesn't make yeah. sense in retrospect. Yeah, yeah. And, you, and at some point you'll be thinking to yourself, "My only regret is wasting time." And I'll say to myself, "Why did I fucking spend two hours with John Hammond?" <laughs> she says, "Why fucking waste of time that was." You know, I'll say this. So, you know, Springsteen. I, I read this thing he said about you. He said, "Steve is the part of my brain that always wants it louder, harder, more raucous, more please, more, more." A little more than that. Steve's my first audience when I write, when I create something. I'm always thinking, "What Steve's going to think?" I may not always take his advice, but I'm always wondering what his opinion is. And whether Steve was alongside me in the band or whether he wasn't, that part of our friendship always endured. Steve's entertaining, smart, funny series. And still the Steve that I laughed the loudest and longest with. When Bruce said that it was uh, giving you an award, the Big Man Award a few years back, that's a public expression of what your friendship is. When you hear that, you say, yeah, that is what this friendship is about. Do you have the same feeling about him that he has about you with respect to when you're making work, either as an actor? Are you thinking... I can't wait to show Bruce this. I can't wait to have, hear Bruce hear this. Yeah. You know, is that in your mind the yeah. same way? Yeah. I mean, nothing much has changed since we're 15, yeah. 16 years old. I can't think of anything significant that's changed other than, you know, <laughs> we got, you know, we don't see each other every day, but, you know, we'll text every, almost every day, you know, or talk on the phone. But yeah, people will say to me, you know, geez, you look like you're having a good time when you're on stage. And I'm like, I got a front row seat to the, the best show on earth, you know, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> with my very, very shy, introverted friend who has become the world's greatest entertainer. I mean, <laughs> you know, who could have yeah. figured that one, you know, and here yeah. I am, I'm right, I'm right there, you know, and, and he still, he still entertains me. That's the truth. I mean, he still makes me yeah. laugh and we, we treat those live shows like we're in our living room, like we're still at the Stone Pony or, or you know, we, we can turn stadiums and arenas into clubs in, in an instant because, uh, you know, that's how comfortable we are, you know. And I think those of us who have been on the road for a long time, Bob Dylan's the same way. Yeah. Those of us who have been out there for a long time, just, you know, we feel more comfortable on stage than off, really. So, Yeah. I feel the same way about him, and I, I still love him as much as I ever have, and uh, we're lucky to have each other, I think. I think your story is a really a story, David. Now, having read the book and really kind of having my head more around that arc that we talked about earlier of you know the friendship and then the, you leaving the band and then you coming back together, I do think there's just some really enduring lessons about the power of friendship and the importance of friendship in it, and it's kind of inspiring, and I think it's one of the many reasons to read the book, and, and I, I can't encourage people enough to read it unrequited infatuations that only two word title, but they're long words. And the book is a very crisp 403 pages, including the index. If you read the book, you'll learn a lot about the music business. You get a lot of, obviously a lot of insight into Steve's career, but I think there's also some really kind of powerful things in there. You've raised a bunch of things today about, about identity, about 
the relationship between identity in your own head and, and the image that you project to the world. And, and again, I think your passion for friendship and the fact that the friendship you have with Bruce has gone through all the things it's gone through and, and you guys are sitting there still, like you said a second ago, not that much has really changed since we were like 13 or 14 or 15 years old. That's kind of an awesome thing. And I think there's a lot in the book that people will look on and be able to reflect and, and learn a lot and feel a lot and then see a lot of themselves in the book. And I think that's a powerful reason why people will enjoy reading it. One of my great takeaways from reading the book, and I, it was fabulous, and and it makes listening to some of the songs, it fills some of them with greater meaning too. Last thing I'll ask you is about rock music. And we sort of brushed on it somewhere earlier in this conversation, but there's a place where you write this. I thought this was so strong. You talked about part of the reason you went back to the E Street Band was because you said there was something different about the rock idiom's ability to communicate substance. And here's Here's the little short paragraph. You say, folk music passes along stories and allegories. Blues talks about the conditions of life. Jazz operates through mostly wordless intellect. Soul is all about relationships. Rock has substance and the ability to communicate worldwide, and that includes its greatest hybrid, reggae. And then you go on and start talking about Marley and, and about hip-hop, a.k.a. rap, and other things. And, and thank God you mentioned Wu-Tang Clan in there, because if you hadn't, we would not be doing this interview. Any mention of, of the rap world that doesn't mention Wu-Tang gets you banned permanently from my Zoom screen. But Steve, that's my question. There are a lot of people who think basically rock's dead now. I mean, as a business thing, rock and roll, like in the music business, it's not really a functional category anymore. So I ask you, like, does rock still matter in 2021? And if it matters, how does it matter? Why does it matter? Why do you think it's important still rock and roll itself? You know, it's the umbrella of rock that hangs over everything to this day, including the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and everybody in it. It's remarkable that it has lasted this long. You're talking about 70 years now. 70 years of this umbrella of rock. You know, yes, the rock era was specifically, I clock it from 65 to, to, you know, like a Rolling Stone to Kurt Cobain's death, exactly 30 years. Hmm. And then we returned to a pop era and rock has now returned to being a cult. But it will always be significant. It, it is somehow unique in its ability to contain and sustain and communicate a substance. There's something odd about it, that the way it evolved. And I talk about how it evolved in the book, you know, very, very specifically, thanks to Bob Dylan, mostly. But um, there's something there, you know, the industry has no use for us anymore. <laughs> but live, we're still the biggest thing. We're still the biggest thing live, because that's a big part of rock. Right. You know, the video thing never really replaced the live thing for rock. You know, it, it was very telling to me. They came to me to try and save CBGBs at the 11th hour. It, it was too late, but I had a little consciousness raising fundraiser concert in the park over here. And, and the first two people that responded to my word that we're gonna do a, a concert to try and save CBGBs, the first two calls were Chuck D from Public Enemy and RZA from Wu-Tang. And I was like, did you guys uh, play CPTVs? Because, you know, that's where punk was born. And you know, it was really, really a punk yeah. club, you know? Yeah, sure. And they were like, no, no, man, we just want to help, you know? Yeah. And, and that's, that's when it struck me. Like, the rock thing is deep, in other words. It's deep. And it goes all the way into the hip-hop world and everywhere else because the smarter guys recognize that they are a hybrid coming from that rock substance 
communication that we we still yep. indulge in those of us who are still in it we're still doing it and uh, you know it may reach less people but there's nothing more effective you know and the best of hip-hop does the same thing the best of reggae does the same thing best you know it all comes from that substance that was born in the first two sentences of bob dylan's subterranean homesick blues you know as i talk about in the book it's, yeah yeah. We still have a place in the world. It's a little more underground. It's a little bit under the radar. But when it counts, man, you know, people still come to us. I believe that. And I got to say, uh, you know, I don't care whether the music business likes it or not. I'm a voter for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And every year when we get into this discussion, the nominees come out and the votes come out. We get in some tedious fucking discussion on Twitter about people who are like, those hip hop acts aren't rock and roll. Oh, that's, you know, you can't put those guys around rock and roll. I'm always like, what are you talking about, man? Like, I mean, it's about spirit. It's about attitude. It's about rebellion. It's about a bunch of things and some musical things that are actually pretty deeply rooted too. These are like the most tedious arguments in the world. It's a broad church, brother. Like, yeah. come on, you know? It's like, yes, there are some things that don't belong in the Rock Roll Hall of Fame. You know, the Clinton rock are essentially the same. And that in spirit, in the essence, in the ways that matter, they are deeply genetically together. They're twins. So I find that discussion boring when people have it. And I am with you a thousand percent about the enduring power of rock and roll. And I'm so grateful to you, Steve, Stevie. Stevie Van Zandt, Miami Steve, little Steven. We got, there's a Stevie, there's a Steve, there's a Steven. It's all the same guy. Thank you for living it. And thank you for writing it all down. Great talking to you, John. Really, really great. Uh, I'm a big fan of yours and your work. So keep it up. We'll see you down the line. We'll make some trouble together at some point. All right, man. Peace out. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Stevie Van Zandt for being with us for both parts of this podcast. If you like this episode, both parts of it, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineer the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. And man, she did some great pulls on the music and the clips for this episode with Steve and Zan. Stephanie Stender, our post-producer. Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer. <laughs>